Yes. John chapter 13. We're entering uncharted territory, new territory. John chapter 13. And we are going through the Bible. We look at a lot of verses and we'll, you know, we'll hurry up and jump in there. John 13. It's like our highlight here. The music is a blessing. Everything's been a blessing so far. Bless my heart. But really, the preaching of God's word is the culmination of what we try to do here. And uh, John chapter 13, um, I want to start by asking you a question. I want to ask you, do you know that if you're saved, Jesus loves you? Now, we say that a lot. We put that slogan on tracks and we say it to lost people. You know, it's a very famous track. Smile, Jesus loves you. And it's, it's good. It's nice. It's, 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 it gets people's attention. But that truth, Jesus loves you, needs to dwell in your heart if you're saved. You really need to know that. You really need to hear that. And uh, we've been going through the book of John, and and so far, John chapter 1 to 12, this big expanse that we've covered, it took me a whole year to get through chapter 12, (laughs) I'm just cracking up at it, but John chapter 1 to 12 was Jesus Christ in public, his audience was everybody, he was talking to the nation and trying to get the nation to repent. But John chapter 13 through 16, we now start to see Jesus Christ in private, And his audience is his disciples. He's tucked away alone with just that dozen or so guys in the upper room, sharing some things with them. And if you look at verse number one, you're going to see where it starts. John 13, verse one, the Bible says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. The first thing the Holy Spirit mentions in the upper room is Christ's love for his own. Because the first truth that God wants disciples to understand is the love of Christ. That's the first thing he wants you to get. In fact, Ephesians 3.19 says that the Holy Spirit wants the church to know the love of Christ, the love of Christ, the love of Christ. Not just the love of God, right? The love of God is big, it's broad, it's more all-encompassing because the love of God is big like God who's big and fills all things. No, we're going to talk today about the love of Christ. Christ. God's anointed who came down and suffered for you. That's what we're going to talk about today. And the Lord Jesus Christ, I hope this encourages you, has a special love for his own. So let me ask you this, and you can answer out loud if you want. Do you belong to Jesus Christ? Well then, do you know that Jesus loves you if you're saved? Do you know the love of Christ? That's what I want to try to talk about today, God helping me. The love of Christ. The love of Christ. Let's uh, pray and jump in here. Father, we love you today. We thank you and we just praise you, Father. I just thank you for the sweet spirit already. I pray, Lord, you continue to work and minister to hearts. If someone doesn't know you as Savior, Lord, I pray they'd enter into that love today. And may it so overwhelm somebody that they may cast their sins at the foot of that cross and enter into that saving love that you shed on Calvary's hill. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, I want you to stay right there. I want to say this first, that Jesus Christ has a love for his own that he does not have for the world. You're different. You're special if you're saved. Now, I know it goes through your head. Some of you are just like, heresy, John 3, 16, God so loved the world. Yeah, I got it. God so loved the world. Can I English grammar you? Past tense. That's talking about an action, a payment, something God did in the past so that your sins could be forgiven. So God could look at you in 2022 and say, why should I forgive you, you little rascal? Oh, that's right. I loved you enough back there to let my son die on the cross. If you enter into that, I could save you and forgive you. But you got to enter into that open door that he opened 2,000 years ago when he loved, past tense, the world. Look at 1 John chapter 4. 
Go to 1 John, which is later in the back of your Bible. If you hit Revelation, stop and make a quick little left. 1 John 4. 1 John 4, verse 9. 1 John chapter 4, verse 9. We're going to look at a bunch of verses like is our way. As we were taught, that's the tradition we keep. We're going to look at the Bible. 1 John 4, verse 9. The Bible says, same writer, it's John writing. And he says, in this was manifested, past tense, the love of God toward us, because that God sent, past tense, his only begotten son into the world, that we might live, future, conditional, through him. Right? Verse 10. Here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God loved the world when he let his son get beaten on a stick within an inch of his life so that your, the wrath that he has towards you could be paid for by the punishment that he endured in your place. God says, that was me loving you on that cross. So loving the world that I'm going to give my only begotten son. Now, God loved the world to open that door. But does Christ love a world that hates him and rejects him and thumbs his nose at that? Look at 1 John chapter 2. You remember what Jesus prayed in that upper room? And don't get nervous. Don't get, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to circle back. You're going to see where we're going here. You remember what Jesus prayed in that upper room in John 17, 9? You know what he said? Amen. I pray not for the world. Amen. I didn't say that. Jesus prayed that prayer in the upper room. And right here in 1 John 2, here are the words of God. It says, it commands you, love not the world. Neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. That's a command. Love not the world. Hey, would God ask you not to love something that he loves? Some of you look like you might be thinking. That's a blessing. Now, let me put your minds at ease. Does that mean we're supposed to go around hating people that aren't saved? Of course not. Does that mean we're supposed to go around and be scornful and elitist to people that don't know Christ or even reject your offer of giving somebody a track? Absolutely not. Jesus said, love your enemies. (laughs) Do good to them which hate you. Love the people. Love the individuals. Don't love the system. Don't love the organization. Don't love the network. Don't love the big bucket that holds that people in it. Love your enemies. You say, well, that's in the Gospels. How about, how about the Apostle Paul writing to the church in the book of Romans? He said, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. And if you're wondering what that means, he finishes the chapter and says, overcome evil with good. So all that evil and all that antagonism that your enemies throw at you, you say, how do I feed them? How do I give them something to drink? God says, just be good to them. Just be good to them so they might think about your heavenly father and want to get saved. He says, you love your enemies, but you don't love the world. You don't love the system. Listen, I can, I can hate drugs and I can hate what drugs do to people and I can hate addiction, and I can hate that whole evil system, that whole culture, that whole mess of things that's ruined lives. I can hate that system, but I can love the junkie who's trapped and try to help him and do as best as I can to try to get him out of that system, right? Does that make sense? Can I get an amen there? All right, all right, amen. Now, go to Psalm chapter 7. I'm just trying to set something up up here. Psalm 7. I'm just trying to show you that Jesus has a love for you that he doesn't have for the world. (laughs) He's got an attitude towards you that he doesn't have for the world. And God is pleading and God wants people to enter into that love that he shed on that cross. And we're supposed to do our best to be ambassadors of that love. We should be the nicest people, the kindest people, the best people that anybody has ever met. We should be the nicest person at the job, the kindest person on the neighborhood. We should be the one that wants to pick up the bags when we see the lady walking out of the store. We should be the one holding the doors open. We should be the most courteous, kind, respectful, long-suffering, sacrificial people on the face of the earth so we can reflect the sacrifice that God made for a wicked world. That's who we should be. 
But when the world says no thanks and that sinner says no thanks, can I tell you the old adage, hate the sin but love the sinner, won't fly with God. We use that now down here, but when somebody says no to God and God says, I'm done with God, God's not going to say, well, I'll hate the sin, but love the sinner. I want to show you Psalm 711. Some of you are thinking about a Slurpee, but Psalm 711, the Bible says, God judgeth the righteous. That's an Old Testament word for like saved. God judges the righteous and God is angry with the wicked every day. If he, meaning the wicked, turn not, if that wicked person doesn't repent and come to God, you know what he says? God hath bent his bow and made it ready. He's ready to strike that person down. Notice the Lord's got a different feeling for the righteous and the wicked. He's got a different attitude towards them. You ever read in your Bible? You can say amen to that, right? Hopefully you read somewhere, right? But in Genesis chapter 20, Abraham is he's declared righteous in Genesis 15, right? He believes God and God says, I'm gonna count that for righteous. So Abraham is righteous after Genesis 15 as far as God is concerned. And in Genesis 20, he heads down to Gerar and he's got his good-looking wife, Sarah, and he says, hey, this is my sister, this is my sister. He tells everybody that's his sister. You know what the king of Gerar does? He says, well, she's a good-looking lady, I wanna take her to be my wife. So she takes, he takes Sarah into his house to be his wife. You know what God does that night? God wakes the king of Gerar, Abimelech, up, and he says, you're a dead man. <laughs> he says, you're a dead man, Abimelech. He says, whoa, 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 what did I do? I didn't touch her. Abraham's the one who lied. Abraham, the ones that being a little bit deceptive, but God looks at the wicked and he says, you're a dead man. You're going to take that man's wife. I'm going to kill you if you take that man's wife. You see the different relationship? Abraham is the one who's been declared righteous. God deals with him a different way than a wicked man. God judgeth the righteous. If you're saved, say amen. amen. God has declared you righteous. God deals with his children differently than strangers. Don't you? God deals with the church differently than the lost. God will judge you for sin. God will give you a spanking when you need one. God knows how to chasten you, but the wicked, God is angry. God is not going to be like, I got to send you to hell. I don't want to do this. No. Go to Revelation chapter 21. I'll show you. Revelation 21. See, you know why that bothers some of you? Because you underestimate sin. It's not disgusting enough for you. If you saw how disgusting it was, you'd understand why he hates it and anyone who practices it. Look at Revelation 21.8. Here's the whole end of the whole shebang. And in Revelation 21.8, the Bible says, but the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Hey, what exactly does God cast into the lake of fire? The sin or the sinner? What's he throwing in there? Lies? No, he's throwing liars in there. What's he throwing in there? Idols? No, he's throwing idolaters in there. What's he throwing in there? Just, you know, uh, uh, you know murder, murder? No, he's throwing murderers in there. Right? God says, I can't just separate the sin from the sinner. Now's your chance to get your sins forgiven. But if you reject God, that's your destiny. Not just to see your sin thrown in the lake of fire. My sins have been deposited in hell. I got a different relationship. But for the lost and the wicked that thumb their nose at God, that's the future. It's a different relationship. But can I ask you, can I turn the page now? If you've believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, you have a new relationship with God now. Amen? Has anybody done that? Can I get an amen there? If you believed on Jesus Christ and you go back to a moment where you realize that that cross was the only way to get your sins paid for and you said, Lord, save me because of what you did on that cross. God says, I declare you righteous. I'll take your sin and I'll give you my righteousness. It's like if I had two books right here, right? I got two books. One book is the life of Jesus Christ and one book is the life of Pat Mishanya. You know what God did when you were saved? You know what he did? He said, you want to get saved? Okay, I'm going to take my life and I'm going to give it to you as if it were your life and I'm going to take your dirty life and I'm going to take it upon myself and suffer and die and deposit that stuff in hell and you are declared righteous because God has given you Christ's 
righteousness as a gift. That's a, now you got a totally different relationship with God. You're not a criminal anymore. You're a son. That's a whole different relationship. You know what you got now? When you entered in that door, you now have the love of Christ upon you. Go back to John chapter 15. Go to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. That should make sense to you, right? That God doesn't treat you the same way as a lost person. He doesn't think about you the same way as a lost person. He doesn't feel about you the same way as a lost person. Look at John chapter 15, verse number 18. Look what Jesus is telling his disciples there. In the upper room, he says, if the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. He's saying the world loves his own and Christ loves his own. Don't you? Don't you love your kids differently than some stranger's kids? Don't you love the people in your house differently than somebody that lives across Lloyd Road over there? Of course you do. You love your own. And Christ loves his own. And Christ has a love for his own that he doesn't have for the world. The question is, which team are you on? Which team are you playing for? How many people are on Christ's team? (laughs) I hope you're on. Now, here's the second question, and don't answer this one out loud because you're going to out yourself. Which team are you playing for? You could be on the right team and be playing for the wrong team. And a lot of believers are living like the world and trying to play the world's game to win the world's love. That's sad. That's really sad because have you forgotten that you belong to Christ if you're saved? Have you lost sight of the love of Christ for you? It's easy to lose sight of that. You know, um, if I were to ask you what book in the Bible mentions love more than any other, some of you might say John, and you'd be right. The book of John mentions love more than any other book in the Bible by far. You know why John speaks and writes about love so much in the Gospel of John? Because John was the disciple who heard the heartbeat of God, who got that close to hear, I love you, I love you. He could hear Jesus Christ. He leaned on his breast. And if you go to John chapter 13, do you know how, how John saw himself? The apostle John saw himself in a very unique way. Look at John chapter 13. The apostle John saw himself, quote, as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He used that expression four times in the Bible, once before the cross, three times after the cross. I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved. I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved. John chapter 13, verse number 23. There's the first time, right? Now there was leaning on Jesus's bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. It's John talking about himself. Go to chapter 20. Flip to chapter 20. Chapter 20. Look at verse number two. There it is again. This is after the resurrection now. They're coming to tell the disciples. Then she runneth and cometh to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved. Talking about John. Look at chapter 21. Chapter 21, verse seven. Chapter 21, verse number seven. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved saith unto Peter, it is the Lord. Look at verse number 20, same chapter. Then Peter, turning about, seeth the disciple whom Jesus loved following. Can I ask you something, Christian? Is that how you see yourself? John saw himself as the disciple. Did he love all the disciples? Of course. Did he love Peter and James and Bartholomew? Absolutely. But John got so close and heard the heartbeat of God and he was forever changed. He said, you know who I am? I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved. You know why some of you don't see yourself like that? Because you're not getting close enough. If you can get close enough and hear the heartbeat of God, yeah, Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. If you get close enough, you're going to know you're the disciple whom Jesus loved. John represents the church. And if John is the disciple whom Jesus loved, you're supposed to see yourself as the Christian, as the believers that Jesus loved. Do you? Oh, how differently your walk would be 
if you really understood the love of Christ for you. It would change your life. How differently would you see yourself if you heard the heartbeat of Christ once in a while? You know what I want to do for the rest of this message? I want to just get close to this Bible and just take that little phrase, the love of Christ, and show you what it means because it only appears three times. And I hope maybe I can crack through some of your tough exteriors and just try to get down to that heart inside of you and just show you the profound love that your Savior, your Christ, has for you. Go to Romans chapter 8. Let me show you the first time. Romans 8. You know what the problem is? We're so desensitized. We've seen too many movies. We've been hurt too many times. We've got too many things flashing in front of our eyes. And some crazy Italian stands up here and starts raving about the love of Christ. And you're just like, yeah, okay, that's good. What's for lunch? But we're talking about the God who the ladies so sweetly sang took on flesh to love you And that's what you're a part of, and that's what we're talking about. So what is it? Lean into your Bible a little bit. Let's see what it is. I got three things about it real quick. Number one, the love of Christ is an unconditional love. That's amazing. Look at Romans 8, verse 35. See it right there? Romans 8, 35. I'll let you flip there. Romans 8, 35. The Bible says, who shall separate us He's talking to Christians. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? The love of Christ is absolute. The love of Christ is unreserved. The love of Christ is not limited by any conditions, outwardly or inwardly. You know, that's the first time the expression, the love of Christ, shows up in your Bible. You know why? That's the first thing you got to grasp about the love of Christ, that it's unconditional. There are no strings attached to it. If you're saved, it is an unconditional love that he loves you with right now. Let that wash over you. Let that maybe melt you down a little bit. You know, it's a dysfunctional family when you feel or the kids feel, you have to earn your family's love and acceptance. That's a dysfunctional family. In that family should be love unconditional, right? And you are a dysfunctional Christian when you feel you have to earn Christ's love and acceptance. You don't have to earn Christ's love. You've already got Christ's love. And it's the fact that you've already got Christ's love it's supposed to make you love him in return. Because he loves you when you're unlovable. He loves you when you don't deserve to be loved. And it's that unconditional love that's supposed to melt that icy, stony heart and make you want to love him back because how could you love a doofus like me? I love you with an everlasting love. You know the first time the word accepted shows up in your Bible is way back in Genesis. Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, God's talking to Cain, who was you know, an idiot in his own right in many ways. He was wicked. But God says to him, hey, Cain, Put your turnips and your radishes aside. And he says, hey, if thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? That's the first mention. God says, if you do something I accept, I'll accept you. That's the first mention. You want to see the last mention? Go to Ephesians chapter 1. Here's the last time God uses the word accepted. See, why are we looking at all these verses and all these words? Because this is what God has to say. This is how you study his Bible. You just put scripture with scripture, here a little, there a little, and you start to get a truth. And in Ephesians 1 is the last mention of accepted, and he's talking to Christians. Are you a Christian? Can you say amen? amen. Well, then he's naming this at you, believer. He says in Ephesians 1, 6, in the great book on the body of Christ and the nature of the church, he says, to the praise of the glory of his grace... Wherein, are you in his grace? I hope so. He hath made us, are you saved? I hope so. Accepted in the beloved. The first mention, God says, you got to do something, so I accept you. The last mention says, don't worry, I already did everything to make you accepted. You see the difference? You know what the difference is? I'll tell it to you. The difference is whether you're in Christ or out of Christ. 
When you're out of Christ, you're trying to do something like Cain to make yourself accepted, to earn God's favor, to impress him with your turnips and your watermelons and all that other fruit of the ground that he tried to offer God. But when you're in Christ, God already did everything to make you accepted. You just got to enter in. And once you've entered in, hey, God stamps on your forehead. You're accepted. It's like walking into the restaurant. They stamp your hand. It's already paid in full. You can come on in, stay as long as you like. When you're outside of Christ, the love is conditional. In the Old Testament, it was conditional. You know what Jesus said in the Old Testament in Proverbs? I love them that love me. That's conditional. That's Old Testament. That's before the cross. You know what we see in the New Testament, in grace, in the church? The love is unconditional. He says in verse 6, you're in the beloved. You be loved. You're in the room where God's love is, and you're in the beloved. What did God the Father say about his son when he was on earth? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You know what always pleases the father? Jesus always pleased the father. The son of God always pleased the father. And guess what? If you're in Christ, you're accepted because you're in the son that always pleases the father. That's quite a standing. You've got, it made my voice crack, right? Is that, is that exciting, right? You are in the son that always pleases the father. You've got a standing with God that pleases the father because you are, not because of you, not because you're in the Cologne family or in the Mishania family or in the Sorrentino family, because you're in the Son of God. You're in His Son. And when God looks at you, He sees your standing is finished in Jesus Christ. There's another book in the Bible that mentions beloved more than any other book in the Bible. The Song of Solomon mentions the word beloved infinitely more than any other book in the Bible. And do you know what the Song of Solomon is about? Some of you never listened to me ramble on about it years ago. The Song of Solomon is about a husband and a wife in a mad, crazy love affair with each other. It's a picture of Christ and his church and his mad, crazy love that he has for you. It's like a husband and a wife, a perfect husband and a wife relationship. Now, Ephesians, if you're taking notes, Ephesians is the Song of Solomon in the New Testament. It's all about your relationship with Christ. It's all about your love affair of Christ and his church. Can you go to chapter 5? I'll show it to you. Ephesians 5, verse 32. I hope it encourages you a little bit today. Ephesians 5, verse 32. Ephesians 5, verse 32, the Bible says, he's speaking about a husband and a wife, and he says, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. See, Jesus Christ sees his church as his bride, and he's got some intense love for his bride. He and she's supposed to have some intense love for him. And he just, he just overwhelms her sometimes with how much he loves her. She's better because of his love. She's drawn because of his love. She's changed because of his love for her. It's just so head over heels, intense, knocked down, better than any movie you've ever seen kind of love. Some of you are like watching movies and Netflix series and thinking, like, oh, I'd like that to happen. That's nonsense that some numbskull tried to imitate off the Bible. The Bible talks about the God of heaven being so absolutely in love with you that he'd go to the ends of the earth to chase you and say, draw me, we'll run after thee, let's go, where's my blood? He comes in from the night, you read the Song of Solomon, that's a love affair going on. And your Bible, your relationship with Christ is a love affair. It's a mad, intense love between your bridegroom and you his bride. That's the love of Christ. You want to see what that love has in it? Look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, even as the same way Christ loved the church, also loved the church, and gave himself for it, right? Christ had, he paid the price on Calvary's cross in the past to purchase his bride. He says, husbands, You're supposed to sacrifice for her. She doesn't go first. 
you go first. You lay your life down first the way Christ laid his life down first. Don't tell me the Bible's misogynistic. You didn't read the Bible. The Bible puts so much more on the man than he puts on the woman. He says, bucko, you better lay your life down first long before you want it. But she doesn't do that. I had a guy say to me one time, well, I come home and the pasta's not sitting there ready for me to eat. I said, you're lucky she doesn't hit you with a baseball bat. Man, you come home. Woman, I have entered my domicile. Where is my plate of food warm and steaming for my consumption? Man, you're lucky. Man, if, you're, if your wife knows some Brazilian jiu-jitsu, you might be getting tapped out every night. <laughs> right? I'm sorry, I won't say that again. You're crazy. No, God says you're supposed to be the one that comes in from the field. You're supposed to be the one with the spoils. You're supposed to be the one that sacrificed and says, honey, I got this for you. And maybe then you'll woo her to love you. It's supposed to be you first, not her. That was not in the message, but I thought that would be good for you. (laughs) Merry Christmas, ladies. Merry Christmas. (laughs) But anyway, that's the picture. So there was a sacrificial love in the past, amen? But it didn't stop there. It's not like Jesus said, why do you want to give this year? I got your gift last year. Come on now. No, it's not like that. Yeah, I gave everything for you in the past, but look what it says in verse number 28. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself, for no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth, present tense, and cherisheth it, present tense, even as the same way the Lord the church. It's not just a past love that's finished with you in Christ. Christ also loves his bride in the present, right now, continuously. Why? So he could perfect you and make you better. That's the picture. And if you're in the body, Christ loved you on the cross and he loves you right now because you're his, because you're his body and he wants to nourish you and cherish you. Why? So you get better. So you get all that you can be in Jesus Christ. Verse 30, for we are members of his body, of his flesh and of his bones. Go back to Romans 8. You want to know know why this is so important? Look at Romans 8. I got to hurry here. Romans 8. Making any sense to you? Amen. Amen. You got to get this, man. If the Lord made this the first thing that was talked about in the upper room, there must be something that disciples got to get this. Romans 8, verse 35. Look at it. You want to know why you got to get this? Romans 8, 35. You want to know why you got to see that Christ's love is unconditional? Because guess what? You need to know this love because you're going to go through some things. You're going to go through some tribulation. You're going to feel some distress. You're going to face some persecution. You might even endure some leanness that might be a type of famine. You might feel exposed or lacking nakedness. You might face the peril or the sword of some evil people that want to do you harm like those disciples faced. You're going to go through some things, Christian, if you're going to follow God and live for him. You're going to have some Sloan Kettering visits, some broken hearts, some friends backstabbing you, some people speaking ill of you when you only try to love them. You're going to feel those things. And if you haven't yet, it's one of two things. You just haven't lived long enough or you're not living for Christ enough. And if you fill into one of those two, you're going to go through some things. In verse 36, the world's going to look at you and say, for that, as it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Man, you're going to go through some things, and the world is going to look at you and go, man, it's like you're getting your lumps. It's like they're killing you. You think about that, the Roman citizens that might have been beating those disciples and throwing them in prisons and, and executing them like they did, they must have thought about, man, look at these Christians. Where they're getting just killed and mowed down. They're getting rocked. Man, we're accounted as sheep for the slaughter. The world looks at you taking your lumps and goes, what is going on over here? And sometimes that rubs off on you. You start looking upward and going, God, yeah, what is going on over here? But verse 37, you know what Paul says? Nay, no, we're not getting rocked. We're not getting beat down. We haven't lost. Some Christians walk around like the proverbial losers. Everything is like, oh, you know, life is just so hard and everything is so awful. I wouldn't want to be a Christian either looking at you. No, Paul says, yeah, it looks like we're getting rocked, but no. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. How? Through him that loved us. For I am persuaded 
that neither death, that's the first thing on the list because that's what people fear the most, right? Neither death nor life, that's a pretty big bucket, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, that's what's happening now, nor things to come, that's what's happening in the future. Don't get so nervous. Nor height, that's what's above you. Nor depth, that's what's below you. Nor, in case God missed anything, nor any other creature, including the idiot you saw in the mirror, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You know it. I know Jesus loves me. Are you persuaded? Are you fully persuaded? You ain't going to make it through the trials of life if you don't get fully convinced that God loves you that much. Because when stuff is going on, you're like, I don't understand. God says, you remember that cross? I commended my love towards you. When you were wicked, I died for you. Don't doubt my love because your little three-pound brain can't comprehend the circumstances of life right now. Trust me before you trust your eyes. The love of Christ, go to 2 Corinthians 11. I'm hurrying here, don't worry. First one was the longest one. The love of Christ is an unconditional love, but you know what else it is? The love of Christ is an unavoidable love. I don't know how you can get around it. I don't know how you can pretend like it's not there. I don't know how it doesn't change you. 2 Corinthians 5.11, look what the Bible says. The Bible says, he just talked about the judgment seat of Christ, and he says, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord... We persuade men, but we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. For we commend not ourselves again unto you. We're not going to prove to you that we're apostles again, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf that you may have somewhat to answer them which glory in appearance and not in heart. You want to go boast around that we're just apostles? Go do that, but we're not going to prove ourselves anymore to you, Corinthians. For whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God. If we look crazy, it's because we, we're trying to do what God said. Or whether we be sober, if we're checking ourselves, it is for your cause. For the love of Christ constraineth us, restricts us, holds us back. Because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. He's saying, man, the love of Christ is compelling. It's irresistible. It's able to provoke you. I mean, how could you know the unconditional love of Christ and not be changed? How could you understand Christ's love for you and not at least want to live for him? I mean, if I were dying and someone saved my life, it should be natural to want to do anything for him. But you know why Christians don't get to that place? You see the middle of verse 14? You see what Paul is doing? He's doing something Christians don't do. He's thinking. He says, you know why the love of Christ constraineth us? Because we thus judge. We look at everything and we weigh it out. We go, you know what? If Christ had to do that, that means I was a dead man. And if I'm alive now, that must mean that he wants my life to be something for him or else he would have let me die. That's what he's saying. Paul's stepping back and he's saying, I'm thinking about the fact that if Christ had to do that, that I must have been an awful sinner that needed some serious help from God. He's judging. And a lot of Christians are so plugged in, connected, and networked that they don't have a second to think. Their minds are saturated like an iPhone with too many pictures. It's just like it's not working. Nothing else can process. There's no room in your data bank because you're so busy and so saturated that there's no time to stop and think about, wow, Christ died for my sins. I guess I should try to live for him because he did all that for me. If you never think about Christ's death, if you never take a moment and think about it and judge yourself in light of that sacrifice, you'll never be constrained by his love. You step back and go, wow, how could I touch that? Christ died for all the times I touched that. How could I do that? Christ died for all the times I did that. Go back to John 13, 1. I want you to see something there in John 13, 1. John 13, 1. Hurry with me now. John 13, 1. Man, it's such a love. I hope I understand it. 
John 13, 1, the love of Christ. John 13, 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of the world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. Holy Spirit wants, can you just stop? Can you just, I know it's a busy time of year, I know. The, the alarm's gonna ring for me tomorrow too. But can you just stop for a few minutes and just stop? And just think about the fact that Christ's love for you never stops. Your love does. His never stops. He loves you unto the end. He loved those disciples unto the end. You say, who was in that room? Thomas. Jesus Christ loved Thomas like that. Thomas, who would soon doubt who he was. He loved him to the end. Say, who else was in that room? Peter. Jesus Christ loved Peter unto the end, who was about to deny him, curse him, and pretend like he knew nothing about Jesus of Nazareth. Who was in that room? Jesus Christ loved all those disciples, even though all those disciples in the garden were going to forsake him and flee from him. And Jesus loved them unto the end. Yeah, stop. Process that. Process that. Those of you that have been hurt, abandoned, betrayed, backstabbed, Jesus Christ loved you when you were the one driving the knife into his back, the one running out on him, and the one, you know, dipping the colors, the one saying, oh, I don't know, I don't know that Jesus of Nazareth. Let me drop a few F-bombs to show you that I'm just like this little maid over here. That's how much he loved you. You know what somebody said one time? Love is when a man wipes, when a man wipes away your tears even after you left him hanging on the cross. That's amazing love. That's the love of Christ for you, for his own. On your worst day, his love has not dropped a blip on the radar. And when you contemplate and judge Christ's unconditional love, you know what it should become? Unavoidable love. Like, how can I pretend like that's not there? How can I live like I'm not under the shadow of that cross? How can I not realize? How can it not change you? If I could preach like this with a subject like that, the subject is what's compelling, not the speaker. The subject is compelling. If that subject doesn't compel you at all, you're either not saved or you're so full of the world that your heart is a block of stone. And I pray that you could repent. Years ago, there was that movie. I'm going to, should have brought the Sunday school kids in. They'll all know it. The Winter Soldier. Marvel movie, right? Got Captain America, the hero. And it's got his friend, Bucky, who's the Winter Soldier. And Captain America finds Bucky, and Bucky has been brainwashed by the enemy, and now he's this killing machine. And his mission is to just get rid of Captain America. Get that hero out of his life. And right at the end of the movie, Bucky, the Winter Soldier, is pounding Captain America in the face. He's pounding, pounding him. And Captain America is not fighting back. You know what Captain America says to him that makes the Winter Soldier stop dead in his tracks? He says, I'm with you till the end of the line. You know what that does to him? That stops him. And all that brainwashing... And all that stuff the enemy told him that made him want to get rid of Captain America out of his life, it just stopped him. This guy is not fighting me. He's not hating me. He's not trying to hurt me. He's taking this beating from me and still loving me anyway. And after that, the Winter Soldier, his heart starts to melt. And he changes. And brethren, the enemy tries to brainwash you and brainwash you and turn you against your hero, turn you against your beloved, turn you against your savior to the point where sometimes you don't want to come to church, you don't want to read that Bible, you don't want to hear that preaching, you don't want to pray, you don't want this, you don't want this. You know what the savior could do if he could look you right in the eyes? Even when you're trying to get him out of your life, he'd look and say, I'm with you till the end of the line. Having loved his own, he loved them unto the end. How could that not change you? Back there in 2 Corinthians, all those comments about Christ's love being unavoidable, they come after the comments about the judgment seat of Christ. Yikes. I think it means 
if you didn't do what you did out of love for Jesus Christ, will it really count at the judgment seat of Christ? What are you doing just because you love him? Just because you want to thank him? What did Jesus Christ ask Peter when Peter came ashore? Hey, Peter, lovest thou me? I wonder if when we cross that heavenly waters and come ashore to the other side, I wonder if that's the question the Savior will ask us. Did you do, do you love me? Did you do it out of love for me? Because you were compelled by the love I had for you. Finally, and very quickly, Ephesians chapter 3. Ooh, it's getting quiet. I hope you're just thinking. As a teacher, you can't, think, you can't appreciate more when just your students think. And I hope we're all just thinking a little bit. I don't know what you're supposed to do with this message, but just think about it right now. No, finally is this. The love of Christ is an unsearchable love. It's unconditional. It's unavoidable. And finally, it's unsearchable. The love of Christ is not like any human love you've ever had or experienced. There is no frame of reference for it. There's pictures, but they all fail because people hurt you and people break down because they're not God. Man's love, you know what man's love is? Even the best of us. It's conditional. I'll love you if you, you know, love me. That's usually what happens. There's always a string attached with man. A man's love is avoidable. It's not so selfless and sacrificial that it changes you. You're like, oh, you know, it's an infatuation half the time. But it's not like the unavoidable love of Christ. So if there's no frame of reference, how do, I, how do I understand it? How do I understand this divine love that only could come from Jesus Christ to me? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit wants to reveal Christ's unsearchable love to you. He wants to take something spiritual and convey it to you. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, even the deep things of God. So how am I going to understand Christ's love? The Holy Spirit will understand it for you, make it clear to you. Ephesians 3.17, look what it says right there. Here's the prayer of Paul, which is really the earnest or the desire of the Holy Spirit for you. It says that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith that ye being rooted and grounded in love. You know what the Holy Spirit wants for you, church? The Holy Spirit wants the love of Christ to dwell in your hearts. He wants this love to occupy your mind, to fill up your thinking, to captivate your soul, to grab your affections. That's his desire. Not to save you. You're already saved. Christ already lives in your heart if you're saved. He already lives in there. Amen. Whether you believe it or not, whether you even know that today or not, when you got saved, Christ moved in to your body. And he lives there. But it says right there, he wants to dwell in your hearts. He wants to like abide and fellowship and commune. And he wants to kind of like hang out with you there and get to know you there and kind of have some exchange with you there. Right? Like a husband and wife are supposed to dwell together, right? That's what he wants to do. You know what that requires? That requires some faith. You've got to take the promises of God and apply them. Learn them, meditate on them, grow in them. And then you start realizing, yeah, Christ loves me like that. Yeah, Christ loves me like that. Yeah. And it starts to fill your mind. And then the doctor says something scary or something happens at work or something weird goes on in your life. You say, wait a second, wait a second. I learned about this in the Bible. I learned about where Jesus loved his disciples unto the end. I must not understand this. This doesn't mean God hates me. This just means that I don't understand it. But the Bible told me that Christ loves me. That's how you dwell in it. That's how you stay in it. By faith, even when your eyes don't show you that love sometimes is still there. You know you can live in the same building as someone and have no fellowship with that person. I, I, you know, when I first got married, I had a townhouse, and I lived in that townhouse. Some of you did that. You know, you lived in a townhouse. I was attached. And guess what? I didn't know half my neighbors. We lived in the same building. I, you know, rented an apartment when I first got married. You know, I didn't really know my landlord. We didn't hang out together. We didn't dwell together. But we were living in the same building. And brother, sister, Christ can live in your body and be living there, and you're not dwelling with him. 
You know what dwelling means? Dwelling's fellowship. And God wants to spend time with you in this book so you can come to know and trust and believe the love of Christ. That it would dwell in your hearts by faith. But it ain't automatic. It ain't like pixie dust going to fall down your head when you walk out of that room. You have to take that Bible tomorrow morning and read it and think about it and appropriate it and meditate on it and you have to work at it because everything out there is trying to pull you away from your bridegroom. Everything out there is trying to brainwash you like Bucky in the Winter Soldier to turn your heart cold where you want nothing to do with your beloved. Even though he's living in your body, even though he saved you and sealed you into the day of redemption, he wants this whole thing to be about fellowship, to dwell, to dwell. Verse 19 he says, and I want you to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge. Now that's a contradiction, isn't it? I want you to know something that's beyond knowledge. <laughs> How's that possible? The Holy Spirit can make it possible. The Holy Spirit could do something impossible and make it clear, and he wants you to know. The Holy Spirit wants you, Christian, to experience the love of Christ in an intimate, personal way. To know it that way. Not up here, but down here. As intimately and as personally as a husband and a wife know each other. Adam knew his wife. They became one. God wants to know you. He wants to be that close, that intimate, that connected, that it's like you're walking one with him. And you can almost feel it. Because when you get lost... And all Christ's love for you. You know what happens? That ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. When you get lost in all Christ's love for you, you know what happens? You end up becoming all Christ wants you to be. It'll just happen as a, as a byproduct of that. You get lost in that love and you get filled with the knowledge of God. The words will drop out of your vocabulary. The emotions will drop out of your heart. You'll see people differently. You'll see your family differently. You'll see the world differently. You'll see your mission field differently. You'll see your Savior differently. If you could just get lost in that love and get intimately connected with that love. John 13, 1. I'm just going to read it again. Anybody want that? I'm going to read it one more time, and then we're going to pray. Now, before the feast of the Passover... When Jesus knew that his hour was come that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own, which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. The upper room starts with the love of Christ for his own. You got to start with the love of Christ for you. You know why he started that upper room with that topic? Because those disciples were about to take their lumps that the Savior was about to say goodbye to them and their nation was about to persecute them even unto death. You know where he had to start? He had to start with, hey, just in case you missed it, I love you. I love you. And dear brothers and sisters, just in case the world has given you some lumps this week and just in case you've forgotten, Jesus would like to tell you, I love you. I love you. I love you. If that's where the upper room starts, that's where we got to start. And if you're going to follow Jesus Christ like those disciples did, you need to start where those disciples started, with this simple but profound truth. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. Jesus, you don't believe me yet, Jesus loves you. May the Holy Spirit impress that upon your hearts. Let's stand together to pray together. Let's pray.